0: Jehovah Jireh, would you provide for our hearts, our bodies, our souls this morning what things we need to take in and hear, what things our hearts need to take in? Would you open our hands, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to everything you would have say. Let us miss nothing this morning of your intentions. And we ask all these things through the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We have, I call it a barn burner. I don't know if you guys know what I mean by that, but I think we have a barn burner of a passage this morning in Mark. Uh, It's poignant. It's brief. It's powerful. I think it's very potent. Jesus takes on the scribes, again, uh, this time head on, and he also beckons us to radical kingdom living through the example of the poor widow. Now, our passage also happens to involve money, uh, yet again, one of Jesus' favorite topics, uh, giving in particular. So lest we forget giving is seen as a spiritual act of worship. We can forget that, become divorced from that idea that giving is a spiritual act of worship. And Jesus is, in fact, critiquing how worldly the temple worship had become at the time. So keep that in mind as you are reading through this passage, giving, spiritual act of worship, Okay. So let's dive into Mark 12, 38 <clears throat> through 44, pardon me. Uh, this is right on the heels of that relatively positive encounter with that one scribe from last week. Remember that, the greatest commandment? That's from Mark 12, through uh, 34. Uh, Jesus is teaching in the temple in this passage. Let's not forget that. Think, so think of how incendiary his words might be as he's saying all this given the context. He's saying, beware the scribes. Well, there's a, there's a pretty darn good chance the scribes are right there. Uh, and uh, the other Jewish leaders are present. So he's really kicking the hornet's nest, which he's apt to do when uh, the need calls for it. So why does he warn against the scribes exactly? Well, they were one of the prime examples of a righteous person. They were the example, the ideal religious person to be emulated. God's chosen leaders, that's, that's the scribes. But I have to think Jesus is concerned about how they shepherd and lead the people of Israel, the kind of disciples they're going to make in their own image. Jesus often warns people about them in the Gospels. Why did he see them as so dangerous? Now, had they rejected the authority of Scripture, if they were just pagans out and out, their conduct would have been understandable here that he speaks of in this passage. But when you take the Bible as your rule of life and you act as they did, their conduct brought shame to the faith and it led others astray. So Jesus offers these warnings. As he describes them, they loved loved, loved, loved the fame and honor that their unquestioned mastery of scripture afforded them. See, they were the professional biblical expositors and commentators of their day. They were conservative, they were reverent, and they were devoted to the biblical text like few others were. So you can think of them as a popular conservative pastor or popular conservative theologian. It's pretty close to the bone. You know, It's kind of like, it's getting hot up here. It's a little too close to the bone, okay? They're more like us than we'd like to think. They're more like us than we would care to imagine. Let's get into the specifics though. Verses 38 and 39, Jesus goes about and he kind of talks about things that they do that uh, run against the grain of scripture. Says they go about wearing long robes. Now not normally, you wouldn't normally wear these outside of worship settings. They're talking about, it'd be as if I went out dressed like this uh, in my vestments. And the point is, I'm getting dressed up and going outside, not in a worship setting, to be noticed. That's the sense, okay? And also, you got to remember robes were a symbol of social power. They were a symbol of prestige during Mark's time. It was similar to the Roman patronage system where people who are on a lower social ladder would come up and greet you and affirm everyone's social status in the process when they're out in public. It says they took the best seats in the synagogue, probably closest to the ark, facing the people where they could see and be seen by others. And at banquets, they accept the seats of honor, the prominent places, nearest the host at feasts and festivals. Now here's something that we don't quite get, but I wanna try to take a little stab at. In an honor and shame society, which that was very true in this day and age, honor was not unusual, that desire to have honor. It was strong, in fact. We can't quite grasp how strong honor and shame are in that day and age. We get whiffs of it in our day and age, but it's really strong. So much operates based on honor and shame. So. If you don't remain, if you don't believe that it was a, I mean, honor was just a strong social currency, okay, and it opened doors to you that remain closed to other people. Just look at the picture of how honor functions in this passage. The scribes have an open door to the best that the world seems to offer up. I doubt those that lived under the shadow of public shame, the outcasts that Jesus so often sought out, enjoyed the same perks. Shame was just as powerful, but in a negative sense. And if you don't believe me, you can think of the prostitutes and tax collectors and lepers and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you have any doubts, they were social outcasts. So shame was just as powerful, honor and shame. So they sought honor. So Jesus would tell us they're certainly very religious, but they're also very worldly, very worldly. I mean, how many of their actions in this passage are tied to garnering some sort of worldly admiration, right? Right. In short, they were kind of these spiritual celebrities of their day and age, you know, not unlike ours. They were kind of rock stars, probably not. That sounds a little too sexy, probably, but you kind of get the, the point. They were often mistakenly seen, especially blessed by God, and they were admired, and they sought to be admired and honored. So, uh, okay, where's the sin in being admired and, and honored? Well, beyond appearances, Jesus sees below the surface, as he always does, and he unearths the sins of pride and covetous. When you love the outward show and the glory you garner, I tell you what, who's knocking at your door? Pride. Every time, all day long. And when you love money as much as the scribes did, as Jesus describes them, covetous is close at hand too. Uh, you guys know who John D. Rockefeller is? You probably recognize that name. Here's that famous quote. How much money is enough? You know how he answers it? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more, Okay. So covetous, it feeds, feeds off itself and it replicates itself. So the way Jesus describes them, they operate under a banner or a gloss of religiosity. Long prayers meant to be heard and admired and seen by those around them. And he says they are, quote, as a pretense. Pretense, okay, there's falsity there. So what's the pretense? Well, meanwhile, they're busy and verse 40 says, devouring widows' houses. That's pretty strong language, wouldn't you say? Devouring? goodness gracious. Well, it actually is pretty graphic. It literally means to gobble up. It's the same word for the seed that the sower throws on the ground, but the birds gobble up in the parable of the sower. Same, same word. So we don't know exactly how this happens. Jesus doesn't explain the blow by blow of of how they essentially rob widows, but we're told the way in which they live actively causes their poverty and ruin. That's all we know. We don't know the blow-by-blow, blow, but we know there's a direct cause-and-effect relationship between how they live and what happens to widows. Now, why is this particularly grievous? Well, it doesn't, doesn't take, or grievous, excuse me, it doesn't take a genius to kind of look at this even in humanistic terms and go, you know, taking advantage of the disadvantage. I mean, that's awful. But there's more than just, you know, human morality at work here, okay? There's several biblical mandates to care for the widow, the orphan, and the alien, the least of these the covenant God made with Israel called for the communities to specifically care for the widow, the orphan, the alien. Someone's called the sojourner, which you heard that in some of our readings, whose quality of life and whose very subsistence were often threatened in antiquity. I want you to listen to God's heart for the widow, the orphan, the alien. I'm going to read you several passages just because I want you to get the scope. Okay, This is Exodus 22:21 21 through 24. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And it goes on to talk about God will enact his wrath. It's pretty intense. Deuteronomy, that was Exodus. Deuteronomy ten eighteen. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now there are also similar mentions woven throughout Deuteronomy in chapter 14, chapter 16, in chapter twenty-seven, so there's a lot woven in and out of Deuteronomy about the widow, the orphan, and the alien. Okay, moving to the Psalms, Psalm sixty-eight, five: Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Psalm one forty-six, nine: You just heard that a minute ago. The Lord watches over the sojourners; He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked He brings to ruin. And Jeremiah forty-nine, eleven: Leave your fatherless children children, I will keep them alive and let your widows trust in me. And then there's basically the entire book of Ruth, which stands as a testimony. The situation of widows in antiquity was precarious. Now, why did I just spend time reading you several scriptures? I want you to get a sense of the scope, and I want you to feel the weight of the testimony and the call that's there. Now, a little thing that's going to sound like an aside, but it will become really relevant here in a sec. The Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh was divided up into the Torah, okay, first five books the writings, wisdom, literature, and some other books and the prophets, okay, Torah, writings, prophets if you just listen to all the scriptures I just cited you'll notice it hit on all three, all three the entire testimony of the Old Testament calls us to care for the widow, the orphan, the alien and I didn't read all of them by the way I just gave you a little smattering Exodus and Deuteronomy, that's Torah Jeremiah, that's prophets. Psalms and Ruth, that's the writings. And again, I didn't read all of them. I just read a few. Caring for the widow, the orphan, the alien is a consistent, strong thread woven throughout all of Israel's scriptures, all of the Old Testament. And it's upheld and continued in the New Testament by Jesus and others. So Jesus finds fault because they're feeding off the poor who they're essentially are supposed to take care of, the scribes are. They purport to be men of holiness, okay? godly examples. The widows should have been the object of their compassion and their prayers because they are the object of God's unique concern. Instead, it says they rob them. Jesus makes a pretty forceful indictment here, doesn't he? They're engaged in some form of robbery. Perhaps he's highlighting the ways the treasury gobbles up the means of the poor, thus keeping them poor and destitute, a systematic sin. Uh, I don't know. I think that could be part of it. He doesn't seem to accept them from that. I mean, the treasury money was to be used to run the temple and all its daily functions. But the offering it speaks of here isn't meant to care for the poor. I don't know if you knew that. That's a different offering altogether in the Jewish system. So having said all that, is it any wonder Jesus has a big beef with them? Big time. And the key theme is that pride that leads to hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. It's more than fair to say that God really hates hypocrisy. Pretense, it's called in this passage, pretense. So hypocrisy, unfortunately, tends to beget more hypocrisy, and Jesus will have none of that. He will not have you praying out of one side of your affluent, people-pleasing mouth as you're literally robbing your neighbor blind, which that's the picture here. So hypocrisy, let me give you a picture of that. It's Greek for wearing a mask. It's actually what you use to describe an actor someone who goes on stage and puts on a mask because they're what? They're playing a role, right? So the person playing the role is not the same as the one on stage. Thus that phrase two-faced, okay? That's a hypocrite, okay? It's not always negatively used, but certainly in this context it is. Hypocrisy is about uh, the discontinuity of the outward appearance and the inward state of the heart, okay? God wants our actions and our heart to match and he knows that we can perform outward actions and yet have an unconverted hard heart. Did you know that? You can do good things. You can do things that look just fine and holy, but you can also do those out of just behavioralism, right? You can do them out of duty. You can do them out of obligation. You can do them because of the perks they get you because people notice it, as is the case of the scribes. There's a lot, all, all sorts of unholy motivations to do something. But God wants transformed people. Transform people. That's why he doesn't seem to suffer hypocrites uh, very well. Jesus has hard words for them on many. So check this out. This is from J.C. Ryle, one of our Anglican brethren. Here's what he has to say Of all the sins into which men can fall, none seems so exceedingly sinful as false profession and hypocrisy. At all events, none have drawn from our Lord's mouth such strong language and such heavy denunciations. It is bad enough to be led away by open sin and be captive to it and to serve diverse lusts and pleasures. But it is even worse to pretend to have a religion while in reality we serve the world. Let us beware of falling into this abominable sin. Whatever we do in religion, let us never wear a cloak. It's good. Let us be real, honest, thorough, and sincere in our Christianity. And there's the rub. Sincerity honesty, thoroughness, realness. Because of their hypocrisy, and this is the end of verse 40, it says they will receive the greater condemnation. God makes no bones about the fact that he judges and calls the leaders to a higher standard, both in the Old and the New Testament. It's not just an Old Testament thing. okay? Both Testaments. There is a more stringent standard and this is no exception. And the condemnation spoken of here isn't necessarily an earthly judgment. It really is an eternal one Jesus is speaking about. So this is a, this is a weighty judgment that Jesus is, is meeting out here. His judgment of the scribes is based on the inner motivations of their heart. That appearance versus reality thing. Which God sees everything. He's not really fooled by appearances, is he? no. And Jesus, as I said before, he always sees in the hearts of men and women in these gospel stories. So this is no different. It's the same thing. Now, okay. Lest we become too prejudiced against the scribes. Lest we become too prejudiced. This passage, I think, can boomerang on us, right? You know what I mean by that? What happens to a boomerang? You throw it. What happens in the cartoons? They throw it, they turn around and walk away, and what happens? Pop! Yeah, hits them in the back, hits them upside the head, Right? We're tempted to side with Jesus very quickly and quite easily in his opposition to the scribes here, aren't we? It's easy to do that. It's easy to pistol whip him. Come on, Jesus, yeah, yeah. The widow, the orphan, the alien, you bet, Jesus. Oh, yeah, those hypocrites. It's easy to do that. But if we do that too quickly without examining our own hearts, we will miss something in this text. We will miss something. Because pride, hypocrisy, and love of the world, oh, folks, are those anything new? Nope. Nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes tells. Their behavior is not unique to them, but it's a phenomenon that cuts across all cultures and all ages. Listen to this, and I'll let you decide how you feel about this. This particular quote from one author, okay? This is, I have mixed feelings, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. We like to identify ourselves with the widow, but most of us, North American Christians, are the scribes. We enjoy products and infrastructures whose provision devours the lives of the poor of the world, and no length of prayer can hide us in our love of what we have and what we've accomplished. Okay? That's, even if you disagree with some of that, that's something to listen to. That's something to hear and land. So whether you fully agree with that statement, what I'm trying to move us towards here is we must ask ourselves some very hard heart questions when we read about the scribes because it is always easier to demonize them, isn't it? Man, I'm not like those people. Man, I'm not like them. Whew, good thing I'm not like them. What's harder to do is to press in and examine our own hearts and our own thoughts. Lord, where do I seek the favor and the admiration of the world and insulate myself while ignoring the needs of the least of these, the widow, orphan, alien? Where am I part of the problem, Lord? Okay. Might I be part of the problem? These are fair questions. okay? And that's a systemic question. Where do I take part in a broken system sometimes that keeps the poor poor? Okay, okay that's the scribes. Let's move on to the widow in verses 41 to 44. Now, regardless of the issues at hand and how you feel about that quote I just read a second ago, Mark paints a stark contrast between the scribes and the widow. Together, you need to think of them, their their pictures, they're like a matching pair. They're like uh, two sides of the same coin, if you want to look at it that way. And notice how Jesus reserves his commentary on the widow for his disciples, not for the masses. He pulls them aside, and he makes the points. They watch uh, rich people putting in big sums of money, okay, Yet this is only a small percentage of what they actually have. So Jesus makes a point to say they contribute out of their abundance. Now think about this. Who do buildings get named after, typically? Who do they get named after? Who gave the big gift, right? Typically the wealthy patrons who contribute out of their abundance. Uh, What buildings get named after the countless... Unnamed faithful tithers who have very few means, but maybe even just gotten it out for years. Generally no recognition there. So the widow, by comparison, puts in everything she has, and Mark makes a point to say, actually everything she had to live on. Now the two small copper coins, if you're curious, that's the smallest coin as you can think of. That's why often our text says penny, because there's nothing smaller than that. It took 64 of those coins to make one denarius. And one denarius was a day's wage, okay? How about that? So that's what you need to have to live on for a day. So do the math with me. I'm not trying to work you too hard here. Uh, the woman had about 132nd of what she needed to live on for a day. And yet, she puts it into the treasury. She decided that her money, what little of it she had, belonged to God. Now, if you know this, but what of her offering? In ancient Israel, the poor were not required to give. Interesting, did you know that? Some probably did because they believed in the goodness of uh, of the temple, its leaders. Perhaps she assumed the Jewish system would provide for her. Don't know, we don't know. All we know is she gave all that she had and she didn't have to. She wasn't required to by the law. What we do know is that she gave out of her poverty and out of her devotion to God as Jesus sees it. And it's an unseen and pretty insignificant and unnoticed offering to the world's eyes, but not to Jesus's eyes. I'm sure most people miss this, this, but Jesus draws the disciples' attention to it. In the kingdom of God, what is valued and important is different than that of the world. And I'm talking about people here as much as money, okay? Because she is valued in this passage, okay? These are those upside-down kingdom values, and Jesus is certainly showing us kingdom values versus worldly ones, The first shall be last, the last shall be first, this is the great reversal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The widow is the one who, and rightly I'd say, receives honor here. She receives honor, not the scribes. Jesus honors her and uses her as an example. Now on the surface, we can see in her a call to a generous heart, certainly, and that's true. But also we see a fiercely trusting heart in God to care for her future needs, she shows us that it's not about what you give, it's about what you keep for yourself, okay? It's not about what you give, it's about what you keep for yourself, okay? Let's come back a little bit, <clears throat> and we'll end here. Uh, our gospel passage teaches us many things this morning. You can talk about appearance versus reality, there's certainly that. External works versus the inner state of our hearts, there's certainly that. Hypocrisy versus authenticity, there's certainly that. Pride and ambition versus humility, lowliness. We could go there too. Uh, What we keep from ourselves versus what we offer to God. It's not about what you give, it's about what you keep. We could talk about that. And I leave the Holy Spirit to sort those things for you. But I do want to give us some other questions as well. The core question remains, are you more like the scribe or the widow? That's just hard to avoid. That's what the text is getting at. Now, if you're anything like me, maybe it's a little of both, right? <laughs> maybe it's a little of both. Maybe there are areas where I am a lot like the scribe. And certainly with the way this passage reads, it hits really close to the bone for me as a, as a priest and a pastor. There might be areas where you're really like the widow. You need to own that. This passage, I find, probes our deepest motivations and our hidden insecurities and fears okay? There is certainly, and I'll give you two calls here. I do believe there is a call to live generously, as the widow did. That's one. And I also think there's a call to live authentically and with integrity. That's two, which the scribes did not do. We learn about them via the negative. Uh, Let's speak about living generously. That's the first uh, ending point. The second ending point is authentically and with integrity. Uh, Generously. Is your mindset based more on a theology of scarcity rather than a theology of God's generosity, okay? When you live, here's, let me describe that a little bit for you. When you live out of a scarcity mindset, you're driven more by fear than by gratitude, right? What if we stop being driven by fear? What if we didn't have to protect our assets and build a fence around our money? What if we weren't so protective of our money and our stuff? What if he had the same trusting heart as the widow? What if gratitude prevailed over fear? What if generosity prevailed over scarcity? Do you have a theology of scarcity with your stuff? Or do you have a theology of God's generosity? That's one. Final point. a call to live authentically and with integrity. Would you rather fake it and enjoy all the worldly perks that come your way or do you risk living authentically and close to the bone with a trusting reliance upon God? Let's remember that last part of J.C. Ryle's quote. Let us be real, and I find this is great. There's nothing profound about this, but it's just good foundational Christianity. Let us be real, honest, thorough, and sincere in our Christianity. Let's just straighten to the point. Let us be real, honest, thorough, and sincere in our Christianity. Don't fake it till you make it, in other words. The world so desperately needs real, honest, thorough, sincere Christians. I mean, look at what happened in the last month. I mean, just look at the news headlines. The world desperately needs that right now. So living generously and living authentically and with integrity.